0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, uh, I'm joined by a, a few of my colleagues and friends. Uh, I see you, I see Chris Dorides. Hey, Chris, how are you?
1: Doing well. It's good to see you this week, Mark.
0: Yeah. I shook your hand for first time in quite some Months time. at least. Yeah. <laughs> right. We were in Chicago together. We had our uh, conference there, and it, I thought it went really well. Very well attended. Lots of engagement. Lots of questions. Uh, I I, yeah. I I got a text though the next day. I went home. I was tired the next day. I, you must have gone off to another conference because I was getting a couple texts with screenshots of of a speech. I don't, Where were you? Where did you go?
1: I was in Nashville after oh. that at a Raymond James conference. You know we have a okay. great partnership with Raymond James, so Indeed, I spoke at their event.
0: Oh, fantastic! Oh, great! Well, very yeah. cool. well. You're you know people are, you have paparazzi. They're following you around, Chris. <laughs> yeah well anyway, well it was, good, it. it was a good week it was a good week this is a, a, a this podcast is a little bit different. we tep- typically record on a Friday uh so we get all a week's worth of economic data but uh today is a Thursday and the reason we're doing this is because this is the day before a potential uh u a w strike and that's the subject of the of the podcast or a big part of the podcast and to help us have that conversation, We've got our colleague, Mike Brisson. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, Mark? I'm, I'm good. I'm always good. You doing okay? You must be very busy. You're busy?
2: I'm very busy today. UAW strike?
0: And yes. Yeah. And and also to help out here, we've got our really good friend, Jonathan Smoke from Cox. Cox. Good to see you, Jonathan.
3: It's good to be back, Mark. And
0: you said you're, you're hailing from where? Where are you today? Uh,
3: apparently, I followed you to Chicago just a few oh. days late. I'm in ah. Chicago speaking at a dealer conference, so I can even share what was going on this morning.
0: Oh, I'd love to hear that. But uh, we'll, we'll come, we'll come back to that in just a second because I also want to introduce Bernard Yaros. Bernard, how are you?
4: Good, I'm doing well.
3: Because
0: uh, be we here? are going to talk about inflation as well a little exactly. later in the podcast, and Bernard is uh, obviously our expert. And I do want to take this time to say that Bernard, this is Bernard's last podcast. Yeah. Or, or maybe not. I don't know. I I, I say that. why you but, invite me. In. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I, I, better better said. Bernard is leaving us. Uh, yeah. He's taking an, another job, and just want to say, Bernard, we're going to miss you. Uh, you can hear it in my voice. I'm about ready to cry. It's like this is awful. This is yeah. really awful. You're a renaissance man. <laughs> you're sucking the wind out of me, Bernard. What's that all about? I'm sorry
4: but it's been it's been a great ninety years here at Moody's It's been a great journey, and i've I've really loved my time here uh, and i and I will say Moody's has changed my life because I met my wife here. so it's it's been a Moody's will always be a very, very important part of me, yeah.
0: well, you were a very important part of Moody, so best of luck. And all I have to say, Bernard, is when you are Treasury secretary, could you just remember the old guy? you know invite me over yeah. you know. Uh, I would sure. appreciate that. Uh, sure, sure. So thank yeah. you. But uh, let's talk about the uh, what's top of mind here, and that's the UAW strike. And, and Jonathan, would you mind? because you're you know you're in the milieu here. You're listening to all this stuff going on. This, you do this for a living. Tell us what what's going on. I mean, it sounds like we're going to have a strike.
3: Yeah, we've had this date circled on the calendar for quite a while. Uh, and it is definitely looking like not only are we going to have a strike, we, we potentially are going to have a, a much more disruptive strike uh, than what was even expected uh, a few weeks ago. Because I, I would argue what we've been saying all year was that, well, traditionally, the UAW uh, focuses on one of the big three, uh, so-called Detroit three, the original domestic brands, uh, you know, formerly uh, what was Chrysler Dodge uh, is Stellantis today, uh, GM and Ford, and uh, up until recent days, the perspective was that there there was highly likely to be a strike. Uh, we've certainly seen the uh, what what the UAW was asking for was very far away from what the manufacturers uh, were were offering in response in terms of a a, a long list of. Of benefits, compensation, rules having to do with tiered uh, layers of, of employees, uh, the length of the work week, uh, vacation time, just uh, a, a lot of different things. And some of it is addressing major concessions that were made uh, during the Great Recession. Um, a lot of it has to do with, I would argue, Things that are really uncertain and important to both sides regarding the shift to electrification of vehicles, uh, because electric vehicles take uh, less labor uh, to manufacture. And most of the plants in the world that produce electric vehicles are not unionized. So it's a bit of an existential threat to the labor unions. Uh, But then on the side of the manufacturers, they're dealing with competition. Uh, and they need a lot of flexibility in terms of of what is not yet a profitable enterprise to make electric vehicles, uh, or certainly at scale uh, that the larger manu- manufacturers see. Uh, but what we thought would likely be the case would would be that the UAW would target one manufacturer. That has traditionally been what happens. They so-called take the lead. The results of that negotiation if if there's a disruption ultimately end up with something that the other manufacturers then follow so it it means that historically we've had disruption for a specific brand and clearly it comes with an economic cost of being disrupted plus the costs that that they end up having to absorb into the future But this time, uh, what the union is saying, and in fact, just about an hour ago, they started announcing the specific plants. Well, they haven't formally announced, but it's been leaked Mm -hmm. what plants are going to be targeted. And it's a so-called stand-up strike, which basically means they're not going to be out in force picketing every factory. They are Mm -hmm. deliberately choosing specific factories to cripple uh, all three of the manufacturers uh, and actually likely force them to have to pre- preemptively just shut down all their operations. Um, so it is it is more disruptive than what we normally see. Um, and that's that's sort of a, a big change uh, that we're looking at. So I think the questions quickly become how long does this last? Uh, because it's really the duration of the strike that that uh, will matter And there are differences in the brands that we can get into, you know what those potential implications are. But it definitely looks like when midnight rolls around tonight, we will be in a position where a substantial chunk of uh, production in the U.S. is is going to be disruptive. Um, I don't uh, produce. We don't produce detailed uh, production side numbers. We we rely on other uh, firms and companies that produce that. But the best number that I've Seen is that this is likely disruption of about 150,000 vehicles a week uh, that will no longer be able to be delivered to the market. Now, it's in the context of a market that is still supply constrained. We, but thankfully, we have seen very strong recovery, and the domestic three have been well ahead of everyone else. They started uh, recovering uh, more than a year ago, uh, and so have been in a much better supply situation, uh, so far this year. Um, but there is a, there's a spectrum, uh, where some vehicles are almost immediately going to be a challenge, uh, and then others, uh, could, could likely endure a couple of months of a strike before you really see vis- visible evidence of that. So it's a, it's a very complicated picture and clearly one that's fluid. Um, you know, I can say it feels a lot like pulling out the COVID playbook, um, of we're just going to have to monitor this and see what happens. But I think this is very different than the COVID situation where you had 100% of every factory in the world shut down uh, that then led to cascading supply chain issues. This is uh, over the last, so far this year, the domestic three brands, all of their sub-brands, which is basically nine brands of significance, represent 40% of the U.S. sales so far this, this year. So it is not 100%. Is not even fifty percent, but forty percent is meaningful. And when you get into the segments, um, it is disproportionately combustion engine vehicles. It is absolutely disproportionately trucks and SUVs.
0: So, so just to remind everyone, this is a little after one p.m. Eastern time on Thursday, September fourteenth. So, uh, just the you know, when you say midnight, so. September fifteenth is the when we think this this is going to happen. I, so I just going stepping back a little bit. Um, when I heard that uh, the strike might be, uh, uh, you called it a stand up strike. So it's not. I'm going to shut down every. You know, I'm not going to pick at every uh, factory. I'm going to uh, shut down certain factories. Each of the three automakers will suffer some shutdown, but not a complete shutdown. But it, it sounds like you're saying that doesn't matter. You know, they're gonna. This is gonna the way this probably will play out. They're gonna shut down factories that are so important to the rest of the supply chain that everything is gonna shut down. I'm gonna lose all production.
3: That's right. Well, a two 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 parts of that, as as I'm interpreting what what is being reported. One is yes, they're not going after just final assembly plants, they're actually going after, uh, for example, transmission plants, um, which have a broader uh, sort of spillover. But they've also communicated that they will change their targets uh, o- over time without any uh, warning. Uh, so effectively it makes the, uh, the manufacturers, if they were trying to uh, keep production going, uh, by by hiring uh, temporary workers, that it, it would be impossible to orchestrate because it could be different tomorrow uh, compared to what they're doing today. And the read that I'm hearing from uh, folks in the industry is that it's it's likely to force a preemptive closure of most operations. Mm. And we we also heard earlier today that the Teamsters has said they will not transport uh, any vehicles from uh, the the manufacturers who the UAW are act- actively striking, and so again, forty percent of the market is no longer, if it's produced, is no no longer going to be moved.
0: And, and you met you threw out the statistic: one hundred and fifty thousand vehicles per week. So that's is that total production for all three automakers
4: during? The yeah,
3: week? I, I think that was a really good current number that Evercore ISI put out this morning, uh, mm-hmm. representing what they think is the most recent cadence of production pace uh, for all three.
0: Okay. Uh, the other uh, key statistic is the, the number of vehicles that are on dealer lots or in the inventory. And can you give us a sense of that? I, I follow your data and, and I apologize. I didn't even really introduce you. Or <laughs> of you. I just don't.
3: Well, I'm a three-timer like, oh, now, so yeah. A
0: number of times. Maybe you want to take a minute just to introduce... You know your what uh, Cox and and the work you do, it, it, but the the question goes. It, it, I follow your data very carefully, and I, I know Mike works with you very carefully. We put we have a lot a, a joint relationship and do joint re- research on affordability for vehicles and lots of other things. But I watch your inventory data very carefully. You put out really cool data every month. And the, the last release, I, I think it was for the you know the month of August was. Fifty-eight days of inventory, which isn't too far off of what I guess the industry considers typical. Although I guess there's some debate on what typical means. Yeah. Sixty yeah. days. So that that sounds, at face value, that sounds like okay. We're in a we're sitting in a okay place. But I'll turn it well, to you.
3: Yeah, we're certainly in a better place than we were a year ago. Um, you know, inventory numbers have been right at 2 million units, uh, that are, that are actively advertised and yeah, back to the, who am I, uh, I'm the chief economist for Cox (laughs) automotive Cox is, uh, the, the largest, uh, service uh, provider in the auto market. Um, so we are in the wholesale, uh, retail software, supporting dealers and consumer facing through brands like Kelly blue book and, and auto trader. So, we're we're the home of the Mannheim Index, which has been the poster child for inflation discussions. Which, we'll, you know, we'll we'll get into. Um, uh, so I I get to you know I was attracted to come here after spending over twenty years in housing, and that's how I originally got to know you, right. uh, because of this just immense amount of of uh, data uh, that that we would have. And boy, has it been interesting uh, since since I've been here. I've been here for six and a half years. Um, And most of those years have had something interesting going on. The last four have been, you know, absolutely crazy. Um, So, yeah, we we have basically have been trending in the right direction. This year has been a year of recovery for the new vehicle market. Year to date, we've had a 15.4 million SAR up from 13.8 last year. It's all because of finally seeing recovering uh, new vehicle production that's resulting in increased deliveries and recovery of some level of inventory, uh, that yes, is, is up, um, the, the total amount of inventory is up over 60% year over year in the latest numbers, but you're still looking at a day supply number that's less than 60. And it's funny, 60, I was told originally that's normal for the industry, but we were clocking 90 on a regular basis, hmm. uh, back in 2019, um, and, and that's a fundamental nature of this industry. This is a high fixed cost capital intensive industry where it takes on average five years for each new uh, vehicle to be planned out uh, from a production standpoint. You can't, you can't reduce capacity easily. You've got players from uh, m- multiple regions of the world, all with different ownership and different sort of strategic uh, interests. So it's been a classic industry. Uh, that constantly overproduces. Um, and I would say would always have a tendency over time to get back to an overproduction uh, situation. But you had this unique situation of, of COVID shutting down every factory in the world uh, that created then this cascading problems because of semiconductors that really caused this recovery to take this long to get this far. Um, so this, I think, is clearly going to be a disruption uh, in in that recovery, we had been seeing, uh, but that's th- why I focused on the key question is how long does does this last and right. where are we going to see the pain first? Right,
0: right. I, I do want to get to that and it's kind of, well, how do you think this is all going to play out? Uh, and then well, obviously we're going to talk about the macroeconomic consequences, but before we go th- there, m- maybe I'll turn to Mike. Mike, is there anything you want to add, you know, to what Jonathan said about, what's going on here, you know, leading up to this strike?
2: I think an important point is how it's changed just in the past couple of days from us thinking it's going to be old pattern of one company that then going to oh it's going to be all three companies that's what we talked about a month ago when we brought this up and now it's going to the stand-up strike and the stand-up strike is in reference to the 1930s where they had the sit-down strikes at gm and so it's, it's a reference back to that and uh, the how far apart the two sides are right now i think is another important piece uh it, there's really no confidence that it's going to be a quick fix. And I think that's another part that needs to be stressed, and we'll get into that when we talk about our thoughts on duration of how long it lasts. I think just the past couple of days is really, it stretched out how long I thought it was going to take to resolve all this.
0: Huh. Interesting. I mean, we we, we when we've been thinking about it, uh, Mike, the work you've been doing, you had assumed all three automakers would be affected, and that the, all production would be impacted. So. This 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 is um. It sounds like you're saying this feels darker to me. What you're saying right now, but is it because it's duration? I guess you're thinking the duration is going to be longer.
2: The impact could be larger because of the duration and how Jonathan okay. said that these uh, very precise uh, stand-up strikes are going to hit uh, key pieces of the supply chain, which makes the companies have to shut down all their production. Uh, what that means is the People that get shut down, they can go on to unemployment rolls instead of having to dip into the strike fund, Ah, which means that the duration of the strike can go. I I put the max, I think it's 77 days. The strike fund would uh, be run out at current levels. They have 825 million in the strike fund. So that was about 77 days for all the employees at the three companies. But if they don't have to pay out all the employees, they're only doing pointed strikes. And then the other uh, factories get shut down at the discretion of the organization then they had to play out unemployment because they're the ones that made the decision to shut down rather than the union walking out and having to strike
0: oh wow that's interesting i didn't realize that that's very interesting so so just to reiterate right now they ha- the UAW has funds that could pay their workers for 75 80 days but that's assuming that they're they're not collecting any ui so if they start collecting unemployment insurance that would extend out the length of time that the UAW could pay their workers if they were on strike.
2: It, and they're not paying them full. They they have a $500 yeah. per week right. fund, but that's double yep. what it was in 2019. So it's not mm-hmm. insignificant, but it's not everything.
0: Got it. Okay. Okay, so duration here is really key. Jonathan, so how what do you think how's this going to all play out? Um I mean, what's the most you know, you, you're an economist. There are people who are, I'm sure asking this question: What's your baseline forecast? What's going? And of course, we got to put pen to paper. We got to produce a forecast, and so we have to make an assumption here. And I've been assuming six weeks. uh, You know, mid September, end of October. What, what? What do you? How do you think this is going to play out?
3: I I think the consensus view from the folks that I've talked to, um, I think it order lines on a hopeful view um uh, is 30 days uh, 30 that days, we're, okay. we're likely looking at a month and if you assess actually the position of some of the manufacturers um uh, essentially you have a continuum of these these three brands uh and the sort of sub-brands they they represent so you've got a really different story, uh, across the three in terms of how they've performed this year, uh, because you've basically had a year where, uh, GM has seen strong growth, uh, in their sales. They're, they're up 17%, uh, with very strong growth, uh, in, in their sub brands. Um, sorry, that's, that's their share, uh, of, of the marketplace is 17%. They're up 19% uh, for the year. Ford is up nine percent, but Stellantis is actually down one percent. And part of what we've been observing in their growing inventory numbers was the assumption, well, Stellantis must think they are going to be a target. And they have been uh, maybe perhaps a little less aggressive in their discounting or incentives or their marketing because they wanted to be well, well prepared uh, for potential disruption. So on paper, when you look at the amount of inventory they have. It's quite a contrast across these brands because, uh, for example, we think Chevrolet uh, currently has right at uh, 50 days of supply, uh, so is uh, less than the industry overall. Uh, But at the other end of the spectrum, there's 100 days of supply of Ram trucks. Uh, There's 127 days of supply of Dodge cars. Uh, You've got Uh, Jeep at 85, uh, and Ford in the middle at at 81. Um, So uh, GM, and specifically with their Chevrolet brand, uh, I think is likely to start having issues after two weeks. And uh, Stellantis could probably last six weeks or longer without seeing a lot of material change. Now, the nature of the vehicle market means the devil's always in the details and every single one of them have a model that that I could suggest is a canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. uh, for us to pay attention to, because if you're trying to extrapolate, well, what is this going to mean uh, to sales? Well, you want to look at the high volume vehicles and uh, what's going to happen as supply tightens, but that directly relates to the inflation discussion with Bernard, because um, you know that's precisely those canary vehicles are exactly the vehicles that are likely to see a turnaround in what has been a return to discounting this year um, and uh, in ever-increasing incentives as supply has started to uh, increase and particularly more for the Detroit brands uh, than than others. But these vehicles are more expensive than the average new vehicle because, again, they're heavy in trucks and SUVs. Um, so it is, it is not like... Uh, an average uh, you know, brand. And there, this does traditionally, usually you don't see a strike. One is because it's much more targeted and isn't as disruptive as going after 40% of the market. And by the way, uh, back in 2016, the three brands were 45% of the market. So it would have been even more disruptive had something like this happened historically, but they've lost share mm-hmm. uh, to new EV entrants and to brands that continue to produce sedans that they have not. Um, but traditionally, this creates opportunities for other brands to step in. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the timing is very interesting because the the Detroit 3 have outperformed, and, and with the exception of Stellantis, took share from other brands over the last year precisely because they were further along in production recovery. Uh, and so uh, Toyota last year lost share. Toyota has lost more share this year. Honda lost share last year. Honda is starting to recover, but now every single brand is in a much better position. And in particular, if you're trying to kind of pick who could benefit the most, Toyota's at the top of the list. I, mm-hmm. I had breakfast with a, a group of dealers this morning at this conference, and and the the people representing Toyota stores were were mm. giddy and happy. Uh, so they're 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 looking forward to.
0: Can they get Uh, what this means on the
3: retail side? Toyota, absolutely.
0: They can. Okay. There's no, there's no, they can pick up production here in the U.S. and globally. Yes.
3: They're, 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 they have non unionized plants Mm -hmm. in the U.S. uh, And this doesn't disrupt their global. Maybe they'll have some issues. But the Teamsters have said that they're, they're only going to stand against the brands that their UAW brethren are. Got are it. striking against. So no, I don't think it's going to negatively impact uh, th- those other brands.
0: Okay. Um, so just, just, I'm going to press you a little bit because going back to duration, because that seems like the key variable here in terms of yeah broader macroeconomic consequence, You, the way you, you kind of answered the question was, well, people are, are saying consensus is 30 days and that's optimistic. That's how you answered it. Yes. How, what do you believe? what is it uh i i, I know i'm putting, going you going back me, to mark
3: our, i'm not going to answer that question cuz i I'm, no i mean yeah. i think it's fair that's the nature of I, and
0: then i'm going to turn to mike mike burson and he's going to have to answer the question but go ahead <laughs>
3: yeah. uh i i am troubled by exactly the language mike used that how how far apart the parties are and how the situation seems to have gotten worse this week rather than uh sort of seeing progress so i i think I think it's likely to be uh, at least a two month uh, affair and there could be um you know ramifications that that essentially create issues that that uh, persist so um I'm thinking you know do we need to rethink fourth quarter uh new vehicle sales uh because of the disruption uh and and the lack of vehicles uh, but you basically do the math and we, we probably can move along for about four weeks without much of a change. Um, but I think beyond then we're going to start seeing re- real challenges.
0: Okay. so so a couple of months it sounds like uh, we should plan for that you, you think we should plan for around a couple of months. Mike, what do you think? Uh, what's your view on this in terms of duration?
2: the baseline that I had before this week was a month. And I think I was one of those people that Jonathan might've heard Where's the of that consensus. I mean, consensus there, okay. but after yeah. this week, I am more pessimistic, not as pessimistic as Jonathan. So I don't think it goes the full two months. Um, I'll say the 59 days, I guess.
0: Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> exactly. The amount of inventory we got. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let me ask, is there, there's a, Jonathan, you did a great job of laying out all the things the UAW is asking uh, to be addressed—from pay to benefits to hours to—you know, pretty much. It feels like almost everything is on the table here. Is there one thing that is kind of at the top of the list? Do you think, in terms of what the UAW is trying to accomplish here? Is it—is it simply just they want a big pay increase, or is there something else going on here?
3: Uh I. It's hard to really understand what's truly most important to them because it seems like every element would be important to certain groups. Uh, To me, what strikes me is is a return to defined benefit uh, plans, obviously some substantial change in compensation, and that's actually where there has been a little bit of progress this week. The UAW has come off of their 40%, uh, I think, the, we're now down to thirty six percent, and and the manufacturers are in the high teens uh, in in their latest offers. Um, but I uh, the tiered the the tiered rules that keep new people from reaching the same uh, level of compensation and how long that is seems to be uh, one that if you're sort of looking at it as a as a shuttle diplomat <laughs> between the sides, it's like oh. Mm-hmm. They're not communicating the same language uh on on that uh topic and it's not being talked about as much in the press but again i think this issue of electrification mm. uh and the opportunity for uh, or a commitment from the manufacturers that future plants um will be unionized uh is is something that i th- i think that's a really difficult one for uh the the detroit three to to agree
0: to mike do you have a view on that question like kind of sort of what's primarily motivating the ua but what do they care about the most
2: the most interesting from my side is the 32-hour work week hmm. the that's something that hasn't been proposed before but what's most important to them i i don't have a good sense based hmm. on basically what jonathan said they you're looking for these pay wage uh, raises, but you also want to protect the number of employees that you have uh, that you're representing. And uh, I think it's strange that it hasn't been talked about in the press, but as they open up the new EV factories, are they going to be able to uh, unionize those at the same level that they unionize the non uh, EV factories and the fact that EV factories use less labor than non uh, EV assembly plants is another issue. If we switch over to, all EVs, you're going to have less workers and having less workers in the union, uh, what does that mean for the pay? Because are, are you having the same level of productivity? Are we going to increase pay because uh, the same number of workers are producing the same level of units? Those sort of discussions, which aren't really being talked about.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, let's let's move on and talk about the economic consequences. And Mike, maybe I'll turn to you. In Maybe you could kind of lay out all the different channels through which a strike like this could impact the economy. Then we can talk about the numbers, or you can do both at the same time, but just provide a framework for folks to understand how this impacts uh, the economy.
2: Sure. The uh, The first channel we think about is the lost income from the, the workers. So the workers come off the lines, and this is going to be lost income that goes into their pockets. We, we do say that there's a strike fund that gives a $500 per week, but that's, that doesn't meet all of what they make per week. Then you had the lost production, so that's the, the lost income going into the corporation. Uh, so you have that channel as well. Uh, on the other side of the the equation, you have all the suppliers. So if the suppliers have to shut down, that's lost income for those workers as well. Uh, so you have all of these, and then you have the spillover effects. So you have when those workers aren't getting that income, what are they spending? So uh, the spillover effect, so you're not spending as much uh, because you're not getting paid uh, and at the same rate that you were. So you have all of these economic impacts that are coming from the lost production, lost output, and the lost incomes that are coming in for the, the whole infrastructure, the whole ecosystem for the automakers. Uh, so that, that's what we consider like the, the GDP impacts. And these GDP impacts.
0: Can I just, can I just rephrase it in Mark Zandi's frame? Sure. Give me that, the
2: Zandiism on it. The,
0: the, yeah, the, way I, the way I would articulate it is it's just output. Uh, the first thing is I'm producing less vehicles and therefore that's a, a hit to GDP. GDP is the value of the things that we produce. We're just going to produce simply less vehicles. And then you have the so-called multiplier effects. So if I'm producing less vehicles, then I'm going to be producing less of the things that go into the vehicles: electronics, you know, paint, you know, whatever it is, you know, tires, that kind of thing. That's lost output. And then also, to you, you lose the workers. In this case, may not lose that much income, give, given that they might be compensated by the UAW. But they're going to lose some income. That means less spending in whatever they're spending less on. Means less output, you know, and that's across the board. You know, that's pretty much everything. That's also the multiplier. And then, in this case, the other aspect of the macroeconomic consequence is the. And Jonathan uh, did a great job of talking about this: is the price effects, the the fact that you you know inventories are pretty lean coming out of the uh, out of the pandemic. Prices have gone skyward, and we're going to come back to this when we talk about inflation. Uh, and uh, if we're not, if they're not, if the vehicle manufacturers can't produce inventory, is getting drawn down. Vehicle prices, are, they're not, they're certainly not going to fall. They may start to rise again. And that complicates things enormously in terms of the inflation picture. And maybe at some point, under some scenarios, affects thinking at the Federal Reserve around monetary policy. I think that's a stretch, but I'll just throw it into the mix and then the, and then the final thing i'll say it, it hasn't happened yet but at some point the longer the strike goes on and the more it looks like it might really do some macroeconomic damage then it starts showing up in the stock market you know, potentially the bond market too you know uh, credit spreads start to widen and then that has all kinds of implications for broader macroeconomic uh, the uh, the broader macroeconomy does that does that fair the way i laid that out does that sound okay
2: Yes, so you're using okay. the uh, the output approach rather than the inco- the uh, income approach for calculating GDP. Uh,
0: okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that was the Mark Zandi kind of frame. Uh, Jonathan, is that how you would think about it too, in in terms of the the way this would work?
3: Yes. Are, uh, and I'm
0: missing anything? Is there any channel that I, I didn't get or there, I didn't emphasize there, properly?
3: There's one other component that I think, in terms of the impact to uh, regional and local markets, the, these disruptions are obviously much more significant to Michigan and uh, mm-hmm. other portions in the Midwest. It's interesting, there is a very different profile for the store footprint uh, for the so-called Detroit 3 compared to all other brands. Uh, you know, for, for example, Ford and, uh, Ford and GM, or Ford and Chevrolet specifically, each have over three thousand stores uh, in in the country, uh, whereas Toyota has thirteen hundred. Um, so what you end up what you see is that these brands represent almost two thirds of the franchises in, in in the country. They tend to be much lower throughput. Um, and a lot of the sort of inventory that these brands need to carry are because they have thousands more stores. So if you need an option, of, a, a version of every model sitting on the lot, you very quickly get to those numbers. So you're going to start seeing more lo- kind of localized problems. And I wonder about some of those smaller tertiary markets and rural markets where the Ford dealership may be the biggest employer in town other oh, than Walmart. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. It,
0: it's it, it, you forget about this this really significant ecosystem that supports the vehicle industry. It's not just production, but you know everyone else involved. From as you point out, the dealers, and then you've got the mechanics and the maintenance and insurance, and you know so forth yeah. and so on. Massive and we industry. we
3: continue to see. I mean, what what we see in the CPI data, but we continue to see problems yeah. with auto insurance, right. which is related to parts and service, which. The parts situation is not going to be helped by factories being shut yeah.
1: down.
0: Right. Here, let me lay out sort of my, put some numbers to this framework. And, you know, I've been, and I'm consistent with Mike, thinking that this strike is going to last somewhere around six weeks. So split the difference between the one the one month consensus and the two mm-hmm. month smoke pessimist, pessimism. So 1.6. Better to
3: worry 6, about, you know.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, so you know I, that's what I traditionally do. I just you know, go right go right down the middle when there's a lot of uncertainty. And I do the calculation, and the impact is small. you know, a couple tenths of a percent of GDP in the fourth quarter. The reason being in part, it's just timing. You know, it's happening at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth, and you can have some uh makeup, you know, later in the quarter potentially. Also, to your point that, you know, while we're going to see obviously less production by the domestic manufacturers, we could see some pickup by other manufacturers. So that's uh, that's some offset to that. And, uh, you know, you kind of do the arithmetic. It's it's meaningful. It's not, you know, it's measurable. It's going to show up. And that's nationwide, obviously, in places like Michigan and other places. And we can talk about it where there's going to be much more disruption because that's where the production is located. It's going to be much worse than that, you know. Uh, maybe even recession, like in Michigan, for example. But generally speaking, it's going to be modest, small. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, not not a, a game changing macroeconomic event. What do you think, uh, Mike? Uh, Jonathan, I'll turn to you first, and then we'll go to Mike. Does that does that sit with you, or does that sound like I'm being overly optimistic? That does
3: sit sit with me because I I, I actually. I, I don't think we're going to see um a substantial change and um, my opinion is we probably won't see a lot of change even next week in pricing and and levels of activity um because the market like dealers are being and have been like in the used car market far more conservative or keeping inventories lean there's there's no real evidence that there's suddenly this, move to stock up on used cars because we think we're going to run out of new cars. Uh, I, th- I think that, uh, we, we have the time to navigate this. There are offsetting currents. Uh, the math makes logical uh, sense to me and the risk of it being larger, I think is more spillover, uh, or maybe when you combine this with the other negative things that are happening in September and October or have the potential to happen, uh, you know, like government shutdown and, uh, student loan payments, curtailing spending, That it's when you cascade all of those that i become right. a little bit more worried about the GDP forecast. Right, right. Now that makes total
0: sense. But um,
3: I use your forecast, so I'm dependent on you know oh, you getting no. that right. Oh,
0: no, oh, no. Uh, no, you're using Mike's forecast. Mike, what did you think of the way <laughs> I kind of, the numbers I came up with, uh, does that sit with you?
2: Yeah, that's the, the framework we've been using. Uh, yeah. One point to that is I think that the reduction in spending would have already taken, it's already started. So if Mm -hmm. I am a member of the union and I've seen the language that's happened over the past month, if I'm able to forecast with an 80% chance that there's gonna be a strike, they're able to forecast that there's gonna be a high likelihood of strike a month ago. And so they start. They slowed their spending going into this. They were practicing mm-hmm. strikes over a month ago outside of the the, the assembly plants. So this is something that the workers have known about before. So we're not going to see it directly in that single fourth quarter if the slowdown in spending takes place, because you slow down your spending in August and September, uh, the strike happens, and you smooth out that spending over October and November while the strike is going on. So to say that it's going to be oh we we had this large Decrease in spending in the fourth quarter, or the large decrease in output, then uh, I think it's it's not going to show up in the numbers the way that that type of impact would happen.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, And I do want to play the statistics game, and I don't go into inflation. uh, But Jonathan, you made a really really good point. I just want to reinforce. And then Chris, I'm going to turn to you and see if you there's anything else you want to add to this because I kind of locked you out of the conversation, which. I'm sorry, I, I did that, but to get you back into the conversation, see if something, if we miss something. But you made a really good point, and that is, we it feels like the economy is struggling with all these little headwinds. You know that if you kind of sort of add them all up, they they feel like a kind of a big headwind. <laughs> you mentioned the student the end of the student loan payment moratorium that starts in October. The same time, you know, the strike is presumably going to be in full swing. We've got a potential federal government shutdown, which is likely on October 1, because that's the start of the fiscal year, federal fiscal year. You got mortgage rate, uh, you know, long-term rates have now popped here a little bit. And so we got fixed mortgage rates back over 7%, which is kiboshed the uh, home sales and of course, no refinancing activity. Uh Oh, and, and probably the most thing that worries me the most is the higher oil prices. I mean, you've seen, you know, oil now back to $90 a barrel. That means the cost of a regular a gallon of regular unleaded is certainly going to be four bucks here pretty soon if it's not there already. And that, I think, is a threshold in people's thinking about the economy and their own personal finances. You kind of sort of had all that. Any one of those things? Yeah, like I just said about the strike. If it's six weeks, nah, you know, no big. Yeah, well, it's, we can. It's okay. But then you throw in all these things, and if one of those things kind of goes a little off the, you know, I'm. You can see Chris is smiling over there. This is like a. This is like it's exactly what he's been saying. Yeah, yeah, there he goes. Yes, exactly. Uh, we could have a problem. You could have a problem. Uh, what do you? I I just ranted. Anybody wanted. Uh, Chris, do you have a view on what I just said? I, I know that kind of is music to your ears. Well, I, I guess it's not music to well, your ears, but it's consistent with what you've been saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's consistent with my fears. It's not music consistent to your ears. your fears. Yeah. That's a yeah, way to put it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that, that summarizes it. This is just another yeah. potential risk. Hard to forecast these well in advance, but these are the types of things that creep up when you're in this very long period of vulnerability. So- I guess the question I would have is uh, more of a curiosity around any political involvement here. Do you, John, do you expect uh, administration or others to step in here to take I, one side I, or the I, other? Or?
3: I think they're attempting to to try to get the tables uh, to to reach an agreement and and not they, be so they, far they apart. Being
0: the Biden administration, the, the Biden
3: administration, administration yeah. uh, specifically working. Um, and especially, I think, also with Michigan, um, because there's a lot of vested political interests in the state of Michigan to see to see this uh, resolve so- sooner rather than later. But even politically, this doesn't evenly fall straight down traditional camps because the electrification issue is actually uh, the union is in a different. Page than the biden administration and uh, they view some of those policies as as uh, part of what threatens their future Hmm. so i don't i don't think that there's a there's an easy answer um to it and for the record mark i generally believe your view uh is correct through all the episodes uh I'm, i'm in the uh the more optimistic camp um but I'm seeing these things quickly change. It's amazing how mm. in June and July, we were we were moving towards this direction that looked like the consumer was past the inflation problem, strong income growth, uh, very strong labor market. We were seeing uh, improving, and we continue to see strong retail demand in the vehicle market. Mm. So there's there's no evidence. In fact, the used car market is stronger. Here at the beginning of September than it has been at any week that so far this year. So mm-hmm. we're we're not seeing the consumer pull back on the vehicle side yet, but consumer sentiment, um, you know, the numbers come out tomorrow from Michigan, and I'm I'm betting that number is pretty negative uh, for the first half of September.
0: Mm-hmm. Going right back to that price of a gallon of regular unleaded. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's funny because the Fed with the focus on super core, everybody's relieved. We're continuing to see progress, Mm -hmm. but the bite that it has on the real consumer, we do a little calculation every month where we take the, uh, consumer expenditure survey baskets for the quintiles and we apply it to the inflation numbers. Mm -hmm. And we're back to a bottom income quintile of having year over year inflation at close to 9%, uh, using, using the August data and, and, it, it's a meaningful pinch, and it causes things like loan delinquencies uh, to get worse rather than get better. When we were right there, almost at the point of threading the needle and and making it to the end and proving Chris wrong, but
0: well, don't, give don't give up, don't give up. You know, <laughs> you're you're sounding awfully lugubrious to me, but you know, uh, you guys stick around me a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> just saying all right let's play the statistics game uh the game is we each put forward a statistic Uh, the rest of the group tries to figure what that is through clues and deductive reasoning and and uh questions and uh the best statistic is one that's not so easy we get it immediately uh although that's hard when bernard's playing because he gets them all very quickly and not so not so um uh
1: difficult we never get it
0: so let me uh chris you want to go first can i go with you first you want to give us your statistic
1: or sure, this is going to be a jump ball, but it's a it's an oh, important statistic. So. Jump
0: ball! Oh no! All right, yep. wait. Let me get ready. Let me get
1: ready. Go ahead. Ready? Yep, ready. The clue is that it's uh, Bernard's favorite radio, radio station, uh, ninety-one three. <laughs>
0: ninety-one point. What is it? That's like the old persons
1: radio station. Uh, It it strikes me like the Mm. smooth jazz, smooth jazz. Oh, smooth jazz. That's right. That's more classical in the morning. I think smooth jazz. Yeah. yeah. We'll get the truth here, but yeah. 91.3.
4: Hmm.
0: Is it uh, an index? It is. It is.
4: NFIB survey. You got it, Bernard. Uh,
0: There
1: you go.
4: I told you,
0: Bernard is like, (laughs) damn, he's so good
1: at this. Uh, Do you want to explain? Sure. NFIB. Uh, National Federation of Independent Business, this is their optimism survey. So how do small businesses feel about the economy? 91.3 was the number for August, came out this week. That's down from what it was in July, 91.9. So small businesses are more pessimistic. And particularly, you can look at some detail, right? This is a survey of small businesses across the country, lots of different questions about uh, their views on sales as well as costs. And uh, yeah, the pessimism is kind of widespread. So they're they're down on the economic prospects of the future, not planning large capital investments or fewer capital investments, I should say. Right, um, they do plan to raise compensation and prices to a larger degree than they did uh, previously. So, right, kind of pointing in all those uh, negative directions. Those small businesses are feeling the pinch, right, in terms of perhaps some slowing sales in the future, as well as still. Fairly high costs from compensation. The one uh, factor that kind of did uh, strike out to me as mo- a little bit more positive is that uh, they're not really complaining about credit or difficulty mm. obtaining credit. Mm. So that doesn't seem to be a, a real issue, at least not one of their top issues at the moment. Mm. This might be a good
0: time to plug the survey business confidence again. You want to you want to do the plug? I mean, actually, the you know we do we do the survey every week. It's a global survey. And we're looking for participants. So please, and Chris, if people want to participate, they can just go to economy.com and they'll see a way to sign up. It's a survey that we've been doing for 20 years. And those survey results are, because you know, I look at that carefully and I I, I do the analysis every week. In fact, every Saturday morning I get up, you know, first thing I do is I go look at the survey business confidence. I've been doing it for 20 years. It's actually improved recently. In recent weeks, it's got a the way I described it, a brighter hue. You know, I'm getting more positive responses. So this feels like it stands in contrast to that.
1: It does. It does. You're right. Um, you know, it could be different parts of the market, right? That yeah. the survey business confidence is everyone, right? It's a mm-hmm. broader swath. This is really focused more on the small business. So mm-hmm. there could be some uh, differences there. Interesting. Hey, Mike,
0: let me go to you next. Uh, and I'm guessing you've got, unless you do a head fake here, a statistic around the vehicle industry. I'm just, I'm just guessing.
2: Maybe. 3.1%. Uh,
0: <laughs> Is it related to the vehicle industry?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, the,
0: now, Jonathan, you should, that you, have, you must have an advantage here. So 3.1%.
4: Yeah. Is that really a good.
2: growth
1: rate?
4: I think Bernard might have more of an advantage. Uh, it's right. the Moody's analytics used vehicle retention value index. Ah, so. oh, geez. Um, no, it's not. Oh, oh
0: good. Thank <laughs> you. That, that would have been embarrassing. Is it one of the, is it one of the, uh, We do we, is it a Moody statistic or is it a government? No. It's, it's a government, government statistic. Hmm. Oh, it is. Oh. oh, can I, could it possibly be the, and I'm really stretching the year-over-year year growth in auto loans outstanding through the month of August?
2: Nope. It's a price level. Oh, it's a price level.
0: Oh. Oh. Yeah, we didn't from have CPI that CPI report. Consumer price index? <laughs> oh.
2: Yes, from, from CPI.
0: Is its it year-over-year is it year CPI for used vehicles?
2: Nope, that's negative 6.6. 6. <laughs> negative 6.6. 6.
0: <laughs> oh, it's got to be... Now, it can't be maintenance and it can't be insurance because that's up a lot. So... it oh is it the month-to-month percent change in no oh it's year-over-year year-over-year huh what do you think bernard you're the you're the you're the cpi maven
3: is it a subset of the new because new is it is a subset of the new yep yeah (laughs) subset of the new new cars it's New, new truck.
4: trucks. New trucks. Oh, oh, wow. got it. Oh,
2: Okay. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and that goes to what Jonathan was saying with the strikes going to impact yeah. trucks more than the cars. And so we would expect to see the, this come through if we see price increases start coming through there first on the, the new trucks versus the new cars.
0: Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, I, I do want to come back to vehicle prices in the context of the next part of the conversation with Bernard around CPI. So we'll come back to that. Uh, uh, let's do a couple more. Uh, Bernard, you want to go next?
4: Sure. So, um, my, uh, statistic is $89.3 billion.
0: Is that the budget surplus? In exactly. August.
4: Yep. 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 Okay. <laughs> now,
0: how impressive is that?
4: <laughs> Very
3: impressive. Jonathan,
0: is that impressive
3: or what? That, that was good, Mark. I don't hear <laughs> cowbells
0: anymore,
4: but
3: <laughs>
0: Oh, that And actually, that's a really cool statistic. That's really cool. It was because this is
4: the, I mean, I was a bit surprised when I saw it, um, but you've never had a surplus uh, for the month of August. Typically, we get surpluses whenever there's, a, typically we get a treasury budget surplus whenever there's a big windfall of taxes. So think April, uh, sometimes in June and September. Uh, But August is really, you know, it's typically, it's historically a month where the government is always running uh, a budget deficit. Uh, But this, we got a surplus uh, this August, and it was really a quirk. It really doesn't have any, don't think that this is Somehow, uh, turn around uh, in in the fiscal uh, uh, fiscal budget trajectory. We're still the 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 federal budget is still gushing red ink, and the outlook is not bright. However, this had to do with uh, actions around um, the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan. So, because the Supreme Court struck down its implementation, the administration recorded in the books. Uh, a330 billion dollar decrease in outlays for the Department of Education. And this goes to the Federal Credit Reform Act. So according uh, under that law, whenever you have changes uh, to student loan programs, the entire multi-year cost of this uh, of any of any such action has to be recorded upfront on a present value basis. Uh, in the current uh fiscal year deficit so if you go back to last summer when the administration first announced uh the the student loan forgiveness plan there was a you know there was also a sharp increase in september of last year uh to account for the the full multi-year cost uh of the student of the debt cancellation plan but now that this is struck down it's not going to happen at least in its uh, earlier form the administration now had to you know re- record that as a reduction in in uh you know outlays uh, on a net present value basis uh by the department of education um but if you uh, abstract from this we're still talking about a um you know we're still talking about a de- a deficit last month uh of more than 200 billion and even uh, the fiscal year to date uh, deficit is 1.5 trillion, which is up from under one trillion last uh, last fiscal year. So that's we're still heading in the wrong direction, um, and yeah, it, it just it just highlights the fiscal uh, the fiscal challenges that will have to be addressed, especially later on in this decade and early next decade.
0: Yeah, it feels like the deficit for this fiscal year that's going to end in September is uh, going to be 1.7 trillion. And it was. Like nine hundred and fifty billion last fiscal year. Now there's some timing issues here too, so I think that overstates the case. Mm-hmm. Like California, people uh, residents didn't have to pay until October. I believe. exactly.
4: What what really whipsawed? Uh, it, there's a lot of like temporary one time factors. So the the sharp reduction because of all the the hit that asset prices uh, took last yeah. year, uh-huh. you had a sharp reduction in capital gains. I'm uh-
0: going to stop you, Bernard, because. We this I want to get to the CPI and I. Yeah. And this is what I love about you. Uh, <laughs> we could have a whole other podcast, but we can't because yeah. you're leaving. You <laughs> yeah. know, come on. That's just why don't you stay? Yeah. And we could have another podcast, and we could talk about the, the, budget. the budget to your to your heart's content. Because I, yeah. I I can feel it. You just want to talk about this exactly. budget. Yeah. Every line item. You know, Bernard knows. Yeah. Ah. So. As I said, I'm, I'm going to cry. I'm just yeah. going to cry. I'm going to cry. Jonathan, uh, one more statistic and then we'll go on because we're, right. we're getting long in the tooth here.
3: I'm going to offer you a twofer, 0.1% and 2.3%, and they go together.
0: Is one month to month, the other year to year?
3: They're both no. year over year. Both year over year.
1: Are fr- Are they from the CPI?
3: Report? No, but related. Yeah. PPI?
1: Yeah. PPI.
0: That would be a stretch.
3: Mike's the one that I figured would get one of them immediately, but he's slow to the draw. Uh, increase the in manheim? Oh, manheim. What did you say? Increase in the manheim? Er- no, that was 0.2%, and I figured somebody would guess that, and, <laughs> and points for that. It was. Uh, it's an ingredient that we use for the vehicle affordability. It's Kelly Blue Book's average transaction price year over year was 0.1% oh. Uh, oh. in August. Uh, in comparison to the CPI that was up uh, closer to 3%, um, like uh, my, Mike was talking about with with trucks. And a crucial difference is the CPI bases theirs on a defined basket of vehicles. Mm. And we, both in the Mannheim Index and Kelly Blue Book, look at the uh, mix of what's being sold. And the mix has decidedly shifted to lower price points, more segments. And hmm. that's why one you can't draw the conclusion immediately that this strike is actually going to cause new vehicle prices to go up on an aggregate basis, um, like in our Kelly Blue Book measure, because it it actually is going to reduce the more expensive vehicles in the mix, allowing uh, competitors like Nissan and Toyota and Honda, who are selling more lower price sedans, uh, to potentially make a, oh, a lar- larger volume. That's but the other. The other number was the uh, sticker price, MSRP, uh, was up 2.3% year over year. So it's been interesting to observe that manufacturers have been pushing up the stickers and the invoices at a greater pace than the transaction prices, which means that the margins are being compressed uh, by the de- by the dealers. As so just, discounting just, just so I
0: understand, Jonathan, so what you're saying is because of the strike in the fact that we're going to see a a potentially shift in sales over to non-luxury foreign vehicles, because there is inventory there and they can pick up production, that's because of that mix effect that could reduce the effects on overall uh, measured inflation?
3: When you're looking at true averages of what's being sold. Yeah,
0: but not the CPI, because that's a basket. But not the
3: CPI, because it's a basket. Right. Got it. Got it.
0: Okay, let's let's turn to the the, the aforemen, is it aforementioned aforementioned yeah aforementioned. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever said that word out loud, but uh, now a- aforementioned CPI, Bernard, do you want to give us a rundown on that CPI number?
4: Of course. Um, so I would just start out saying that the CPI number is it looks much worse than it actually is. Um, so as a reminder to our listeners the CPI or the Consumer Price Index, it measures the average change in prices paid by consumers for a basket of goods and services. Uh, so in August, the overall CPI jumped by 0.6%, which was the strongest pace since uh, June of last year. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, June 2022 is etched in into every macroeconomist's mind, because that was the that was the month when year over year CPI inflation peaked at a multi-decade high of nearly 9%. At the time the Federal Reserve was on a war footing, you know, raising the target range for the Fed funds rate by three quarters of a three-quarters of a percentage point. And in one sense, the August CPI was similar to the CPI back in June of last year. So last month, the CPI for gasoline jumped by 10.6%, which added uh nearly 0.4 percentage point to the month-over-month month increase in the overall CPI. And and back in June of 2022, gasoline also surged by more than 10%. So last month, it was more of an issue of oil production cuts by Saudi Arabia and Russia that contributed to the jump in pump prices, um, whereas uh, last year, last summer, it was really the direct fallout from Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, But it's important to really emphasize that the similarities between the August CPI and the June 2022 CPI really stop at energy. Um, And the key difference between the two is that in June of 2022, it wasn't just energy prices that were rising. Inflationary pressures were very broad based across all goods and services, whereas now inflationary pressures are much narrower. So if we take the median CPI, for example, this is calculated by the Cleveland Fed, and in the most simplest terms, the median CPI ignores all outliers. Uh, so, you know, major uh, swings to the upside or downside across uh, the basket of goods and services. And it really focuses just in the middle of the distribution of price changes. Um, the median CPI is a great uh, representation of just an underlying trend in inflation. And in June of 2022, the median CPI rose by 0.6%, whereas last month, it only rose by uh, 0.3% and in the prior month, it only rose by 0.2%. So because inflation is just nowhere near as widespread as as it was last summer, I wouldn't worry that the August CPI is gonna spur the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates uh, next week uh, at its September meeting. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that gasoline futures, which are a good leading indicator uh, by about two weeks of retail pump prices, are now falling and that suggests that hmm. uh if it holds uh gasoline should weigh on the headline CPI. Yeah, oh it, that's
0: interesting. Oil is up. Is that that goes to the bl- blended gas or uh, yeah, less it's driving formulations? Yeah. Formulations. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. again we,
4: we we don't have for all of September but uh-huh. for now it's at least it's uh flat to, flat, flat to down but um huh. Okay. uh uh but again it, this we don't have it for all of uh, all of September okay. um so I, I again I don't think we should fret too much about this strong August CPI and I also wouldn't worry too much about the core CPI which was a bit was a bit stronger relative to expectations so the core CPI which excludes food and energy prices it rose 0.3 percent in August which was the strongest since May of this year and it also uh, exceeded our and consensus expectations uh, for a, for just a 0.2% increase. But the, but the core CPI was also tainted by higher energy prices. So even though the core CPI excludes energy, high, higher energy prices can still bleed into the core CPI through higher jet fuel prices, which then put upward pressure on airfares. And that's exactly what we saw. So the CPI for airfares climbed uh, almost five percent last year and that uh, last month and that comes after two consecutive eight percent declines in the prior months and this was also the first time in several months um, since uh, that th- that airfares had risen so it was really airfares and transportation services in general that just seemed to be behind uh, the upside surprise in in core services
0: which goes back to the. Vehicles, right? Because
4: transportation. So, so we're services. looking at transportation services. So uh, vehicle prices would be in the core goods.
0: No, but do, don't transportation services include uh, in, uh, car insurance and? Exactly. Uh, yeah.
4: So car and, insurance and, and, and
0: vehicle maintenance isn't it in there. Exactly. Too? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, car insurance the, so,
4: rose at its fastest on record if you exclude the some of the pandemic era uh, distortions. Um, and, you know, I've, I've spoken with Mike about this. It seems that replacement costs for wrecked vehicles uh, were higher last year than insurers had budgeted for. So they're now, you know, raising premiums. Uh, we've Mike and I have also looked at the highway accident data, and those are also pretty elevated relative to pre-pandemic norms. But I I would assume that uh, the impulse to just uh, core CPI inflation from motor vehicle insurance should fade because you are. I've started to read some articles about regulators really pushing back against some of these sharp increases Mm -hmm. in auto insurance rates, and um, there's also pass through from higher new vehicle uh, costs to. Uh, auto insurance. So now that hopefully, if we you know, assuming that uh, new vehicle uh, prices don't really spike up again, I think the the fading away of the prior jump in new vehicle prices should should also alleviate uh, auto insurance.
0: This would be a good place to bring Jonathan and Mike back into the conversation. Have you guys this this conversation has rem- has reminded me of um, uh, something I'd like to see, and that is the imp- the impact of rising vehicle prices broadly on inflation over the past year? Not not just directly, not just the used vehicle and the new, but also including maintenance and insurance and anything else that we should be considering. Has anyone done that? I mean, you know, CPI inflation is over overall core CPI inflation year over year ending in August was what? 44 4, 4.4%. How much of that is simply Related to vehicle prices, Is it, do you have any sense of that? I know that's a tough question. Yeah,
3: I haven't looked at it recently, but at one point, vehicles were directly related to almost half of the that inflation right? that we were wow. we were seeing because yeah. of uh, direct issues and used and new, but yeah. then indirect with uh, maintenance and repair, car rental, uh, and auto insurance uh, hmm. were all have all been at different times, substantial contributors. Uh, Some of what you're describing with service and repair is likely a longer term systemic shift because the move to electrification parallels a move to vehicle complexity and vehicles essentially embedded with software and sensors, whether they're electric or not. um, And that really increases the complexity of minor accidents, problems going uh you know wrong with the with the technology requiring specialized equipment there's just um it is it is hard to envision a world that we aren't going to have higher inflation on that side plus we're capacity constrained on the on the labor side too and I've heard dealers talking about needing to hire electrical engineers to hmm. uh, to run service departments related to some of the more complex vehicles.
0: Hmm. Maybe, Mike, could you update us on your thinking about both used and new vehicles? I mean, we I've been waiting. Used vehicles have seemingly rolled over. They declined again in August, I think down, what, Bernard, two something Oh, 1.2%.
4: Like and that was yeah, what, right. in line. So Mike and I have a forecast for uh, used vehicle prices, and that was in line with what our expectations.
0: Yeah. And that feels like that, but although the as Jonathan just pointed out, that market feels like it might have a stronger tone to it most recently. But anyway, will, that, will the declines in used vehicle prices continue more or less over the next six, 12, 18 months? And what about new? They It felt like they were starting to roll over, but they haven't. Mike, do you have a view on... Can you just update us on your view on those things?
2: Yeah. One quick point to the relative importance. The yeah. mm-hmm. relative importance of insurance compared with used vehicles are almost exactly the same oh. inside the... Uh, CPI report, insurance is 2.7 and used vehicles 2.8. So they're they're very, they're almost the same. That's not even talking about what maintenance is plus that. So those secondary features are more important than just the used vehicles themselves. Uh, but to your point, what are our expectations on used vehicle prices? So we, we've seen a large decrease in the, our wholesale indexes uh, over this past year, Uh, I think we're almost 20% down now from where the peak was at the start of 2022 uh, for our wholesale index. But we aren't expecting any uh, additional price decreases in the wholesale market. We are expecting to see a little bit more in that retail, the CPI numbers, to get back down and match where the wholesale numbers are over the next month or two uh, since they're, they're lagged on that. But given the lack of inventory on the used market, as well as the continued strong demand and the, and the strength of the labor market in our uh, baseline forecast for the slow session or uh, no recession, we uh, we are expecting their demand to remain high. And so used vehicle prices to pretty much flatten out over the next uh, 12 to 18 months.
0: And new, what, what do you think about new?
2: Assuming the impact of the strike doesn't come to play, this is all assuming the strike resolves itself rather nicely over the next Mm -hmm. month or so. Um, We expect new (laughs) prices to remain similar to where they are, come down about 5%. I think we have in the forecast.
0: Over what period?
2: Over the next
3: 12 to 18 months.
0: Okay, fine. Okay. Jonathan, does that sound about right to you?
3: Uh, Yeah, we have a very similar outlook. I think the risk that we have is one that we go through perhaps some episodic cycles because what we're seeing in the used market is as the wholesale prices cascade into used retail, it actually creates demand because you've got consumers from an affordability standpoint that have been priced out of the market finally seeing lower prices. They literally can come in the market, but as they do, dealers have to restock their inventories, buy more aggressively at wholesale, and that causes prices to go up like we did in the Mannheim index in August and very likely will in the second half of September. Um, so, but I'm, I'm not, I don't think we're going to go through another episode of big inflation uh, because we're, we're essentially looking at the demand curve mm-hmm. uh, in, in the used car market. And when prices go up, demand declines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these consumers, by our calculations, we, we think a substantial number of consumers have been priced out of the market. And as long as interest rates are not coming down and uh, prices are not falling more than depreciation. It's a slow and gradual improvement in in demand.
0: Hmm. So, so what you're saying, my interpretation of what you're saying is, well, prices may not come down a lot, but they're not going up because there's lots of sensitivity to price at this point. That's right. If they demand, go up,
3: they yeah. if they go up, they almost immediately curtail come demand. Back down.
0: Okay. Okay. Good. Hey, I, we're running out of time, but I I just want to quickly. Throw out my three cents on the inflation numbers, and I'll bring Chris back in and get his. Mine is that the inflation CPI inflation was pretty pretty close to script. Uh, you know, the we knew that we were going to get a big number top line because of energy, and we knew that. Core CPI came in a little hot, but that was it. Was actually the actual if you look at the second third significant digit, it was like two point seven five, not. So it got rounded up to 0.3 as opposed to rounded down to 0.2. So no big deal. And then if you look at core CPI growth over the past three months annualized, it's two point, what is it? 2.4. Two four. I mean, it's, yeah. it's
4: spot on with what the Fed would want. I mean, that's, yeah, that's
0: yeah. close to target. Yeah. I mean, target's two on the consumer expenditure deflator because of construction measurement differences. The CPI is a half a point or so higher. So 2.4 is pretty, pretty mm-hmm. consistent with that. And then the other statistic I look at is the overall CPI less the cost of housing services, which is about a third of the index, but that's where a lot of the inflation has been um, been focused. It's coming coming down pretty rapidly now because it's tied to rents and rents are weak. But that measure is at 1.9% year over year. Core, core excuse me, overall CPI X housing services in the month of August, year over year was up 1.9%. Now, I, I think these numbers overstate the case. I don't think inflation's is back target. I'm not arguing that. All I'm arguing is that it feels like we're still well on our way uh, to target given the interest rate hikes that have been put in place and given everything else that we know about the economy. Uh, so I, like you, Bernard, I, I think I take a relatively sanguine perspective on on the numbers. Chris, what do you think? Would you, would you, would you push back on that or, or is that consistent?
1: Not to a large degree. It's, we, we knew it was going to be a bumpy ride. right? We've been saying that for a while. So even though the trajectory may still be there in terms of downward, we get back close to the Fed's target over time, it's there's bound to be these bouts of volatility here. So I'd say it's in line with what we've seen so far. I would say I'm concerned about what's gone on over the last few weeks since the reporting period of the report. Right? We do have gas and particularly diesel uh, prices rising that could certainly filter out into the broader uh, economy. So, you know, I think we need to stay yeah. vigilant here. Yeah.
0: Hey, I want to end the podcast with a mea culpa. Uh, uh, this goes to the podcast last week on artificial intelligence, AI. And um, uh, I was playing a, a bit of a game with the folks uh, on the podcast, including our uh esteemed guest martin fleming who was former chief you know you know martin uh, jonathan he's in the cbe yeah. with you you and i he's a former chief economist at ibm and, he, and it was a great podcast on it and as i said i asked i asked the group you know uh, uh how long did it take for chat gpt that's you know the popular uh, ai uh, algorithm um that was an in november back in november how long did it take it to get 100 million users and uh, Martin, I think he said two months. He, I, I can't quite remember. Do you remember, Chris, what he said? I think, I think so. It was maybe three months, two, three months. And I actually kind of sort of made fun of him. I kind of berated him because the I said the answer was two days. Uh, and then I said, well, how many days did it take for TikTok to get 100 million users? And he said three months or four months. And I said, no, nine days. And then I asked about what else? What was it? Instagram. Instagram. And I, he said five months. And I said, no, 19 days. <laughs> I'm making up a little bit of the numbers. I don't quite remember. Well, it, it's not days. It was months. <laughs> it actually <laughs> was months, two months. I, I don't know. How so he was exactly day. right. He was exactly right. If he wasn't right, exactly right. He was pretty damn close. And he handled it so well. He didn't like, you know, push back, come back. You you moron, but you should have because I, I got it dead wrong. Uh still impressive two months 100 million users but it's not two days it's not two days so listener i'm i, I really i'm i'm sorry i blame it on chris you know for some reason it's got to be his fault i i don't you know i don't know
1: you got to no, watch out for the Bernard's revision. fault.
0: we got to blame bernard it's got to be bernard's fault because you know well but you know we it's just because it's his fault this is definitely his fault anyway uh i thought this was a great podcast jonathan thank you so much you you know you really articulate things so well and, um, you know, uh, make it all easy to d- digest and, and, and as well, Mike, you too, uh, really very helpful. And Bernard, I have nothing more to say about you. Um, uh, Chris, I have a lot to say about you. Oh, you know, someone there's, there's time. though. There's time. <laughs> all right. Uh, that, that guys, anything, anything else we want to say? no.
3: I'm hopeful it's not 60 days that you push me into. So uh, that's all. That's
0: all. Okay. Very good. Well, thanks again, Jonathan. And um, we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week.